This episode of the Out of the Frame podcast is brought to you by Sony's C Media Cloud. C supports the entire media lifecycle to streamline workflows for your video production teams so that you can go from camera to cloud to final cut faster. Learn more about C and book your free demo at sonymcs.com. Welcome to Art of the Frame. On this episode, we interview Charlie Noble, the VFX supervisor of the most recent Bond outing, No Time to Die. Charlie is a veteran VFX supervisor and practitioner with some of the biggest blockbusters of recent years under his belt, including Captain America, Jason Bourne, Mission Impossible, and Wonder Woman 1984. Charlie shares with us the attention to detail paid to the production process and the extremes they went to in capturing realism. Be warned, a few spoilers, and a whole lot of eye-openers when you discover just how much was done in camera. So thanks so much, Charlie, for joining. No Time to Die was obviously an epic film. Anytime you get to work on a Bond film, I imagine it's crazy. Was this uh, your first Bond outing? No, my, my first was Goldeneye, so that's how long ago? That's a long yeah. time ago, ninety four, yeah. something like that. So you're um, a you're a Bond veteran. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, and I haven't done any since then, but um, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was my first one. So, and actually, nicely, I did that with Mara Bryan, who was the VFX soup on Goldeneye, and we then teamed up to do No Time to Die. Mara was the uh, VFX producer on No Time to Die, so. Really nice to be working with her again. She's one of the best. Very cool. It's amazing, but we always have this perception of Bond films as these massive adventures with explosions. And I remember going back and watching recently, like one of the older Sean Connery ones, and mm. realizing there's like probably half an hour of of storytelling with, with pretty much nothing blowing up. Obviously, as budgets have improved, the visual effects have improved. I don't know if you know how many VFX shots there were, but it's almost like how many weren't effect shots i would imagine yeah there were we produced over an hour's worth and i think that works out as pretty much more than every other shot involved us to to some degree or other whether it's painting out pod drives on the roof of the db5 all the way through to full cg shots of the trawler sinking or the island blowing up you know so yeah quite a, awesome. quite a few shots yeah I mean, I think we were, you know, going back to your first point, yeah, I mean, there are pretty, some pretty spectacular shots, but I think the filmmakers, rightly so, um, very conscious not to let, and we were very conscious not to let our work between special effects and visual effects overshadow the pretty, well, the very um, emotional content of the some of these sequences. We just, you didn't really need to, to go too full on with this stuff it's pretty full on anyway but we're very conscious not to let it overshadow the narrative and, and obviously this one was very very heavy i mean all, all of these recent bond films have had that yeah. kind of darker feel to them but especially yeah. this one obviously with the ending which um, we're getting yeah. into spoilers anyway but that was a pretty heavy ending for a bond film for sure absolutely yeah i mean uh, all the way through you've got bond traditionally over the course of the canon of the films is gets in some pretty tight scrapes but he always manages to get himself out and you sort of understand that he's obviously clearly able to look after himself pretty well but now we have him faced with not only having to look after himself but also his young family 
which adds uh, a high degree of emotional charge to the action. And obviously then requires us to get involved as to how do we get his family into the heart of the action and well into harm's way. So one of the things that obviously Bond films are famous for is these globe-trotting, fabulous landscapes, you know, exotic destinations. Mm. And obviously in the days of Connery and Roger Moore, these were the real thing. You went and were yeah. exclusively shooting in, in Italy or some remote Greek village. But yeah. a huge part of this film's location comes from digital environments, at least enhancing, if not creating some of those well, scenes. So- I was gonna. I was gonna stop you just after when when you said that all the old Bond films went to these places and how amazing that was. Well, we did the same again. We we <laughs> went to all these real places and yes, we we did have to do a certain amount of modification to to some of them. But no, we really did go to these places. Right. And we did build amazing sets on these locations and these far-flung places. Talk through the process there. How did you make the call on what was just going to be shot, what you needed to build, and then what was going to be done digitally? Yeah, I mean, the the first thing that struck me when I joined the show was just the overarching desire to to get as much as possible in camera. So, you know, we, for the opening, say for the opening pre-titles, we we really did go to a remote frozen lake in the middle of Norway. And we, Mark Tilsley, the production designer, built a a real house set on this frozen lake that worked inside and out. So we shot on the inside of it. And then it was obviously there for when we were out shooting on the lake. And yeah, we we traveled there for the first two weeks of pre-photography. It was before principle started, but we were... We were shooting for two weeks out there. And then, yeah, after that, we went to Matera in Italy and then on to Jamaica and then obviously in and around London and various other places in between. So, yeah, we really did go there and build these great sets. The Norway sequence was amazing because we did go there. It was a frozen lake. We got wow. there just as the season was slightly turning. So we had a very quite a narrow window in, in, uh, in which to shoot our stuff before the ice started to get a little bit precarious but yeah we were we were out on that ice we could drive cars around on it and i think it was probably our first before pre-covid it was our first experience of sort of social distancing the last few days of the shoot we were all out on the ice having a little production meeting or have a a pre-shoot meeting and then we heard this massive crack Um, so it was like everyone two feet you know (laughs) 10 feet apart spread out <laughs> um, wow! No it's, no, it's fine. I think that sort of those, those sort of noises are pretty common on the on the on the guys. <laughs> but it's it certainly the willies up. Yeah, would, no, uh, we only went to that location. Um, and but Carrie had a very particular look in mind for the ice itself. He wanted a sort of a thick, what the Norwegians call it, steel ice, which is a it's very clear ice. It's got sort of frozen bubbles in it. It's riven with deep cracks. But it's thick, clear ice. And to that end, we had an ice polishing machine out there trying to polish off the thick inch layer of crud that's on top of the ice, sort of crystalline white mush that's on top of it to try and get down to the clear stuff. And it was reasonably successful for a short amount of time. But unfortunately, as the season was coming to an end on the ice, the, uh, the this big heavy machine actually sank into the shallow. Oh <laughs> we had to, uh, so we ended up replacing uh, when the cast come out onto the venture out onto that ice surface. Uh, we, we ended up uh, replacing it completely. And Chris Corbold, the SFX supervisor, um, this was actually his 15th bond that he was working on. He surrounded that lake with all his uh, smoke trucks, some of them up to a mile away, to give us a really thick 
lovely blanket of low-lying early morning mist, which, yeah, it was amazing. And, and when the conditions were right, that, that sat perfectly. But we were, we were shooting there for over a course of a number of days and shooting throughout the day. So the sun's moving around, the wind suddenly picks up and all that lovely mist goes away. But we did end up with three or four shots, well, one hero shot, really, that had exactly the right uh, sun, it had the perfect SFX mist. And then Framestore then took that hero shot and then built a, a CG uh, scene to, to match exactly that shot. And then all other shots were then compared against that so that we could then add in, balance the, the levels of, of mist from shot to shot, lay in our, our layer of CG ice that the cast are walking around on. And then add snow to the trees. So we're either adding snow to real trees or we're laying in a complete CG forest with snow on the trees. And then obviously moving the sky around to, to suit, to make it look pretty. But yeah, so we yes, we went there for real. But a lot of those shots ended up being not fully CG, but, but enhanced. Know, some of them yeah. large, some of them not. Some of them were 90% CG. Others were sort of 40%, 30% CG. Okay. And then how many sets did you actually have to build uh, i mean imagine cuba even though there was digital enhancement there was a lot of cuba was a, there. yeah the cuba streets was a was an enormous set out on the pinewood back lot really lovely set that was beautiful um, yeah we sent we sent a, a vfx team out to cuba to capture various buildings that we wanted to also now just out of curiosity how easy was it with the government to get your crew down to cuba was it much red tape it was it, it happened. So it was obviously not, it's, it's not uh, a walk in the park getting yeah. down there and, sh- and filming. But uh, yeah, no, we got there through a local um, contact and got nearly all we needed. We had a big drone shoot planned, but unfortunately that didn't happen. But no. um, apart from that, we got a lot of LIDAR. We got a lot of textures shot, captured a lot of buildings. So yeah, no, it was. It was a, so basically, you know, texture references, lidar for just the hmm. general layouts of streets and things like that. Yeah, and then and, then, and some drone photogrammetry as well, and but not hero. It, it wasn't it. carrying a, um, the camera that we wanted it to. It was carrying a, an HD camera. I mean, that whole scene was just beautiful. It, it just the yeah, lighting, I mean, everything. Uh, yeah, no, definitely it was, and and. Yes, we're extending the streets off in both directions or three directions and topping up sets from what was what was practically built. But no, it was a it was an amazing set. So it's a good collaboration. It, the whole movie is a is a great collaboration between all departments, and every department took it took their craft to its absolute max. And then we're picking up to to produce the final product. And so from art department building amazing sets to the stunt team doing real pretty spectacular stunts say the the bike jump in Matera was was a real jump practical jump obviously we had to it was going up a a ramp that had been constructed out of plywood and covered in sort of a sandpapery finish for the bike to get maximum traction as it went up the ramp but then we're then pasting over a, a bit of um, architecture that we designed to uh, to cover up the ramp. The approach to that jump had been concreted over to give the bike the traction that it needed. And then we're replacing all of that with cobbles. But um, apart from that, it's a free jump. We replaced the head, obviously, because the guy's wearing a helmet. But uh, it's a real jump, free jump, quite incredible to get it right, given the wind conditions and the temperature yeah. and all the rest of it. Yeah, very impressive. How did you source the rider for that one? 
That's well. That's Lee, Lee Morrison, who was the stunt coordinator for this film, and he's done uh, all of Daniel's you know, films, all Bond films. And the writer was Paul Edmondson. He's like a you know three-time world rallycross champion. Right. He's yeah. Top of his. Well, Still, you know, I imagine that's not an everyday jump for him. No. <laughs> no, not at all. No, amazing. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, COVID, and obviously COVID had an impact just even on the screening. I, I was lucky enough, my wife and I got to see it at the theaters, although sadly there was a lot of space between us and uh, you know, yeah. the group of people, but, which is obviously disappointing, especially for a film this huge. Yeah. And we'll talk about the IMAX aspect in a, in a bit. Yeah. But tell me about COVID impact just in general on production. Where were you guys at when everything went down? Yeah, well, we delivered the film to the deadline, so everyone worked very, very long hours to get this film delivered to our original deadline. And then when we delivered it, and then two hours later we heard, oh, and we're <laughs> going to put it on the shelf for 18 months. Wow. wow. Yeah, which, That's you know, crazy. it's fine. But, so it was delivered, and then it put, get, got put on the shelf. And credit to Barbara and Michael for holding out for a theatrical release. It must have been very tempting to have to put it on the stream. Did, it, did it completely go on the shelf, or did things get played with? No, I, I think barring the odd regrade, it was done and dusted and put right. on the shelf. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Everyone packed their bags. And I think a couple of days after we delivered, everyone just abandoned ship and all the Americans went back to America and everyone disappeared back to their homes uh, <laughs> before, the, before the skies were closed. Wow. Mm. That's, uh, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. It's definitely interesting times to be making a movie like that. So. <clears throat> Oh, yeah, I'm glad we missed the whole COVID thing for, for production because, yeah. well, for all of it, really, because yeah, it wasn't yeah. handed in and then, and then it was the first lockdown. So, yeah, no, we, we were doing everything in person, which, was, which is how, obviously, yeah. we're used to working. I'm getting used to working remotely now. It's, there are some benefits, obviously, and some not-so-benefits. Yeah. yeah, it all depends on how good your home espresso machine is, I think. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Are you tired of uploading content to multiple systems? Now you can work smarter, not harder, with Sony's C Media Cloud. Get blazing fast uploads, secure, reliable backup, seamless, simple sharing, and real-time collaboration in a single, easy-to-use cloud service. With C, the possibilities are virtually endless. C allows your team to securely and reliably share, organize, review, and collaborate on and deliver professional media files, all in a flash. You'll find C's powerful built-in collaboration tools and apps are designed specifically for media professionals to work more efficiently. And C's creative suite of apps and tools can empower broadcast and production teams to collaborate on videos in real time, all within a trusted workspace. Let Sony's C Media Cloud help transform how your content moves across the entire media cycle from camera to post to final cut faster. Learn more about C and book your free demo at sonymcs.com. Hey, so let's let's talk about the pre-title sequences because obviously they're as famous as James Bond movies themselves. Yeah. What's what's yeah. the process of making one of those? Yeah, I mean, this pre-title sequence I think was a bit slight departure. You know, the, the Norway sequence isn't your typical opening to a Bond film, but it, it's stunning and it just really... It, yeah, it obviously sets us up for what's going to happen. But um, those action sequences were really driven by Chris Corbold and Lee Morrison, really choreographed the, the car chase, the bike stuff. Obviously, Carrie's asking for how do we get from 
from here to here. Can we get our bike jump in somewhere? But in terms of choreographing it in that town, I think Chris and Lee must have been down there about 15 times, the, the streets of Matera. And credit to the Matera authorities for, for being so helpful because I think a film production riding in such a tight little yeah. little town, yeah, they, they were, they were, they've really bent over backwards. And how, how many of those tight car turns and things like that happen on the actual streets there? Um, it's all yeah, it's all happening on the streets. It's all there, we, yeah, yeah, we, we're um, but we're obviously very conscious that this is. I think it's one of the the second or or maybe even be the oldest continually inhabited places on Earth. So, so you really um, don't want to take out like one you, of their brick you walls. Really don't. There. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so Chris construction every chance that I think we had a tight turn or any danger of the car if it, if it skidded out hitting anything. Uh, old or with an all it's old but so, so all of those turns were were clad with concrete cladding to protect them and then dressed in by an art department to make them look uh, like the original underlying architecture so yeah a lot of care was taken to uh, to obviously protect that old ancient town especially around i think that particularly uh donut square at the end of the sequence uh that was all clad from i think about four foot down five foot down all the way around to protect it from from all of chris's bullet squibs that are going off all the pyro charges that are going off around the square so yeah to protect it also yeah we're very mindful that's a sort of a mantra for the for bonds wherever they go is to is obviously leave it as you found it and uh, yeah well obviously because they're 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 typically are set in these locations with incredible history and so yeah yeah definitely. that's what makes them so compelling that the yeah. I mean, those towns are really incredible so yeah, yeah. obviously that town did throw up a lot of challenges for for, for shooting in there because the, those little streets apart from the big car chase street which is the only real road that goes through the town but all the other little little streets that um go in between the buildings they're all designed for beasts of burden donkeys and, and carts if you're lucky but mainly just donkeys at, a, at the widest so um yeah they're, they're not designed for cars but the town itself is sort of built on a honeycomb of caves and so if you want to put big cranes up to, to suspend either cameras or stunt rigging or anything we had to do extensive surveys to make sure that there's not a cave underneath it that we're going to disappear into when you put a wow 50 ton whatever 30 ton truck on top of it yeah. wow that's amazing that's those are the things you would never imagine would be uh, yeah. production concerns but yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. and and uh, getting the gear there was that difficult i mean is it to a fairly remote access location yeah i mean absolutely we i mean obviously there's only one or two places where you can park all the trucks so that we had to paint that out quite a few times but yeah no getting the gear there involved a lot of walking and uh, carrying stuff up and down lots of steps so i think we, we definitely uh, lost a few pounds on that shoot yeah that's a, a side benefit right yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about this sinking sequence, which I thought it was really well done, partly because it's a pretty tight space that it all happens in. Yeah. And there were lots of cuts, but it read really well. So yeah. tell me about how that broke down in terms of practical and, and yeah. digital. Yeah. Another really emotional scene. And well, it starts with Chris built this amazing submersible set, which was positioned on the underwater stage at Pinewood. It was, I think it was about 50 feet long. He could roll it 360 degrees and 
take it down to 20 feet. So it was an amazing set. But once you're inside there, you're right, it's really claustrophobic. And especially towards the end, you see Bond coming up for a last gasp of air. That's real. And there is only a few inches of air for him to to gulp from, and then out he goes. So, but a very emotional scene as well. It's the end of Felix. And so Chris was keen that obviously all of his bubbles and all of the noise and the stuff that's going on there didn't overshadow that moment. And he positioned all his, I think he had six big compressors pumping air into that to give us a real cauldron of bubbles as this thing's going down and twisting as it goes down. But he could control where they were happening according to according to the action so that they sound um, they sound could record the all of the audio. Oh. In Den, it was to avoid the to avoid any ADR stuff. Basically, um, I think sound were very grateful to Chris for really um, planning that really well with with them in mind. It was another yeah, no, that's great, yeah. that's pretty cool. And uh, so, how, how many days did it take to shoot that um, that, was, that scene? Crikey, I mean, <laughs> Chris had it all in there yep. and ready to go, but unfortunately, when we came to do it, the the schedule changed and he had to take it all out. There's another production was booked in. I think it was, <laughs> it was all the way coming back from Jamaica, so Daniel couldn't wow. go in there and do it because uh, Daniel picked up an injury at the end. So you of actually it. had to pull it out of the tank and put something had else to in there? Had to dismantle it all, take it out, and then wow. and then put it back in again. So we came back to do it again second time around, and I, th- I can't remember how long we were in there for, actually. Uh, three or four yeah. days, three days? Yeah, amazing sequence. And, and then was most most of the internal just all practical, or was there CG? It was pretty much all. We, we, CineSight added some extra bubbles to some of the shots to, to okay. keep that frenetic... Uh, activity going on to you know keep it alive in there but mostly mostly all real in there and then the exterior is and then so yeah we're looking at what's happening on the inside when when chris is rolling his rolling the interior set and then we're translating that out to once we get outside and once we get outside it's all cg so there's a lot of pretty complex uh, simulations that all had to interact with one another we've got oil coming out of the hole that was caused by the uh, explosion. We've got obviously all the bubbles. We've got uh, detritus floating up off the deck of the trawler, you know, buoys and fishing pots and all that stuff. And then fishing nets that are coming up as well. So all that's having to interact. And then we've got all the volumetric light from the red lights that we're carrying underwater from what Linus had, how Linus had lit the real thing once we were in, when we were in Jamaica. Wow. Yeah, so yeah, it, was, it was pretty stuff. epic in terms of scale of what needed to be done, I'm sure. Definitely, definitely. And, uh, uh, and not much time uh, to do it in either. I think we only had about nine weeks to do that exterior, the um, mm. underwater sinking stuff. So, yeah, amazing effort from Dino to, to turn that around. We'd obviously previs, so we knew what we were going to be yeah, how, how close did you stick to the previs? I'm just curious. Um, do, you, do you feel like it was close? Very or? closely, actually, for that stuff, yeah. We tweaked it a little bit based on what Chris had shot for the interior, but no, it was broadly uh, pretty close to the previs. I mean, the, the that process starts with uh, storyboards from Steve Forrest-Smith, who storyboarded most of the sequences, and then we take those keyframes and then we convert them into our previs. Cool. Talk to me about the under-ice scene, because obviously that one purely from a, a technical safety standpoint, is a challenge to shoot. How, yeah. did, you, how did you execute that and make sure no, yeah. no, one, no one drowned? And yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, another another great special effects uh, stunts 
and visual effects combo for the um so it starts with obviously young madeline going through the ice on our norwegian lake and that was a, a special effects trapdoor rig that we actually cut into the ice in norway wow. so we had a real stunt performer falling through that trapdoor rig and then frame store obviously putting in our the cg ice all around so that the ice that she's going through is, is CG, but there is someone, a real stump form of falling into that lake. And it's a real genuine cold lake under there. That, it, yeah, it's pretty through. nippy, yeah. And then we've got a wide shot. We cut to a, a, a deep wide shot um, of the same, overlapping the same action, which again was a real uh, stunt double shot out on a actually a different lake in Norway, but another lake in Norway under the ice but then we're really just taking the body itself and everything else was cg so all the underwater environment was replaced with cg which was from great reference provided by carrie and, and linus for how they wanted the underwater to look but obviously got to strip in our, our steel ice surface under underside of the steel ice and then we're putting in uh, a shape of saf looking down into the water and then the close-up shots were shot on the underwater stage at Pinewood, and we actually um, there were certain sections of the ice out in Norway that that once you cleared off the top crud looked really lovely, and they were nice and clear. So, arts department very kindly cut eight by four sections of this stuff out from the real ice in Norway, and then they put it on a truck refrigerator, wow. shipped it back <laughs> to Pinewood, and we actually craned that ice in, and we shot. That's crazy. I mean, look, was, I'm all, I'm all for extreme filmmaking, but. Yeah, that that feels like that's when you've got a decent budget on your project when you can do things like that, right? That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then we actually, well, we we end, obviously ended up replacing that ice as well, but or adding to that, <laughs> augmenting that ice as well. Right, right. Anyway, it gave us something to, to to shoot on, and we had so we had the real actress, the young actress on that underwater stage. So she was under that layer of of a real ice as she's sort of banging the uh, underside of it to, as uh, Safin stands over her. So yeah, yeah, some. All real stuff there. It came together really well. I mean, it all felt completely physical and plausible. And yeah, well, great. I think that's the key for a lot of this stuff. Ninety percent was actually either attempted for real or was real. So, if we haven't actually got the angle we want, or we need to create a CG shot for whatever reason, editorial or whatever reason we need to, more often than not, there's another angle that's showing us what what it should look like. And that's I think that was particularly true for the um, Safe House Escapes. Uh, sequence where Bond and his young family leave Madeline's safe house in Norway and drive down the North Atlantic Road highway and uh, get chased by a couple of uh, Range Rover SVRs and then subsequently the new Range Rover Defenders that pick up the chase as well. That was a pretty epic sequence. Yeah, this one had some great car chases. That one in particular was just because it was off-road and uh, very intense. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, that was across eight different locations, a couple of different countries, and then in a, a multiple cars. So again, choreographed by Lee Morrison. And we leave a, a set build of the of the house that we reconstructed, the the house that we saw in Norway. Yep. We reconstructed that for summertime in, ah. uh, in the UK. And then so they leave that set build, which we had to extend because it was only a partial set build. They leave that. We then pick them up on the um, North Atlantic Road in Norway. Going down that road, they're chased by uh, a couple of SVRs. They turn off that road onto uh, the side of a loch, which is in, in Scotland, Loch Lagan. They're chased along the side of that. They get to the end of that, go into a foggy forest, which is back at Ascot in the UK. So now how did all that 
come out? How did the location scouting go? Whichever location fit the moment was picked, and yeah. that's pretty. That's a pretty extreme, you know. Yeah, shift I mean, of shoots. Absolutely, and the locations. Yeah, they. I mean, what a what a great job they did on the show as yeah. well. I and mean, everyone did a, an amazing job. But that that sequence was shot pretty broadly. It was it was all shot for real. But then inevitably, you get shots that. The action wasn't quite tight enough, so the cars needed to bash each other more than they did. And so when we're going driving along the lock, um, being chased by the two SVRs, a couple of shots where the, the cars needed to, to come together, we didn't quite do that when we shot it, so we'd switch to CG cars for those moments. So you're cutting between real cars, CG cars, which obviously it's challenging, but then you've got real things to match to, so there's no excuses for it not looking spot on and the frame store did a, a lovely job with that whole sequence it looks amazing and then once we get on to the uh, the chase through the river lee had constructed uh, a series of jumps and ramps along that river chase so all of that terrain had to be replaced to get rid of these jumps and ramps so you've got cg terrain some shots required all cg cars so there's a shot where we need to see two defenders pincering in on the on the Land Cruiser as it goes along. So that was all CG. Other shots, one car might be CG, or you're looking outside from the inside of the car. The exterior, you need to see a car there, so we're having to put a CG car in. And the, the approach to the to that sequence was sort of threefold, really. You've got the real for all the exterior, the wider exterior stuff. You've got the real cars doing it, and we're having to replace the terrain to paint out the tracks. And then if you get closer, we get the cast in the car, but then we've got a pod driver driving the car remotely from the roof. So we're having to paint that driver out, but at least you've got the the real uh, actors in the car being thrown around uh, and we've got all the action going on outside. And then once you get even closer inside the car, then we we moved on to the stage for that stuff and we've recorded all of the car's motions for each location and each take with IMU devices which then gave us the exact motions of the car. So all the bumps and the the jitters and everything. We then took that data and and we we took the cars, took the engines out and mounted them on one of Chris Gobold's six-axis gimbals back when we got onto the stage and used that data that we recorded from the locations to drive the gimbal so that the, the car was being thrown around exactly as per what had happened on the, on the, uh, on the location. And then we, we surrounded the, the cars with a 270 uh, ring of LED panels so that we were getting in, you know, decent interactive lighting from if you're going through a, a bunch of trees or you need dappled light, moving light, moving shadows. We're getting that from the LED panels. Obviously, when you get into the sunlit stuff, you, we need to augment that with a, we augmented it with a 5K par. But right. yeah, for the most part, yeah, we, we're trying to recreate reality. So basically you had uh, like those... LED lights running on a DMX setup that would just... It was, uh, no, we, for each location, for each run, we, we, we had a nine-camera uh, array vehicle that, that ran the run. As soon as we'd done a take and we were happy with a, with, with a take for the real picture cars, we'd then run our array vehicle, which was an all-terrain vehicle with nine cameras, and it ran the same course. So then we then oh. took that footage, and that was played back on the LED screens. Got it, got it. Yeah. So, and... Uh, curious. We'll talk about this in a moment, but uh, you were shooting film, yeah. right? So, how did you have any issues with the LED panels and all the the driving plate material was shot on red monstros? Okay. Yeah. So, so no issues really with right. that. Yeah. Cool. So, obviously, 
we know all about uh, big explosions and CG airplanes and cars and things. But yeah. one of the things I loved, uh, looking at the DNEG breakdown reel, was uh, they had a shot of Ana de Amas kung fu fighting in, in yeah. Cuba. And there was a bunch of Frankensteining, you know, just making sure that those deadly high heels connected in the right places. Yeah. So given that there was a lot of physicality, I, I mean, I really felt for, for Bond going up those stairs, man, I just couldn't wait for him to get, get to the end of that, that staircase because they just kept yeah. coming. It was awesome. But yeah. so how much did that went on? Like where there was just tweaking of some of the combat scenes yeah. and stuff? I mean, for yeah, Anna did a lot of her own work and did obviously, yeah, she was, she did really well in that sequence. Yeah. But obviously you can't be kicking, doing high kicks for six inch stilettos. Yeah, take someone's eye out. So, so yeah, she was wearing trainers, built up trainers so that she, they were sort of the same profile as a pair of stilettos. So she was still, her feet were at the right angle. But yeah, whenever we saw those, we were having to replace them with, with CG stilettos and making the, uh, the kicks connect to, to face. We were adding sometimes extending legs or bringing heads closer to her feet so that we were connecting them better. Yeah, did a really good job there. One or two of the kicks were her stunt double, so we were doing face replacements. Yeah. But she she got pretty physical, I imagine. Yeah, so, no, definitely. Yeah. yeah, did a really great job. Yeah. Cool. So t- tell me a little bit about working with film, because, I, I mean, I've got to say it's been years since I've actually done any visual effects on film. I can't imagine they're making a million film scanners these days. Is it still a bit of an awkward process just getting the transfers getting everything color consistency those kinds of things it's why well, I, I was sort of slightly removed from that process okay. i mean so, obviously yeah. waiting for imax scan the, yeah there is a there's obviously not that many imax scanners so yeah right um getting getting hold of the imax scans was there was a little bit of a lead time there but they went as fast as they could and they were you know very good so yeah you do have to wait a bit longer to get hold of the scans for sure but that's that's kind of part of the appeal of yeah. working on film, right? It's just the, you, yeah, it's kind of like unwrapping the thing later and and getting yeah. what you get, and yeah, yeah it, it 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 sort of instills a certain discipline as well. But especially when you're shooting, you're not sometimes if you're shooting on a digital production, I've seen people just leave the camera rolling and you just keep it going, and you're going, well, you're going to cut now. It's burning. <laughs> you're only burning pixels. Whereas film, you wouldn't do that obviously with an yeah, IMAX yeah. camera. So let's talk about the IMAX. A lot of work goes into producing content that a fraction of the audience is ostensibly going to see. But it, it sounds like you guys actually worked hard to make that IMAX experience like yeah. solid and unique. Tell me a little bit about that. Absolutely. I mean, I think a massive credit goes to, to Linus and to Kerry for sticking with that IMAX content. The whole pre-title sequence was IMAX and a large part of Cuba was IMAX as well. The Cuba Streets was IMAX. So I think it was probably over a half an hour's worth of IMAX. Wow. Um, yeah, so a big chunk. And um, yeah, obviously, for visual effects-wise, it, it does come with its own challenges, for sure. You've got a lot of real estate there on the negative. The frames of the area is a lot bigger, squarer than your average. And sometimes frames can wobble slightly in strange places. But it does look stunning. And I think when you see it on the big screen, it certainly shows. I was so happy to see that when I went to see the film. It just looks stunning. Ah. Yeah. So tell me about the vendors involved. Who did what and where's the credit due? Yeah, I mean, obviously, huge credit to our vendors. ILM, Mark Bukowski at ILM handled all of the Matera sequence. And then 
all the work on Safin's Poison Island, so all the stuff underground in the missile silos. Framestore did, did the Norway pre-title sequence, did some beautiful work there, and also for the Safe House Escapes sequence as well. And then Dineg did the trawler sinking, all the Cuba fight stuff, and, and obviously the, the finale from the glider coming out the back of the C-17 all the way down to the island, and then the island getting pulverised at the end of the film. So, yeah. Joel Green at Dineg, Jonathan Faulkner at uh, Framestore and Mark Bukowski at ILM. And then CineSight did a, did a whole bunch of work as well in various places throughout the film. Salvador from CineSight did some lovely work there. And then we had our own little in-house team who managed to get through, I think, about 200 shots. And wow. there was only about eight of them from the post office. So they did cool. some, some great work as well. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with me and it's just been great just hearing uh, what was involved and and quite frankly just the scale and the detail i'm still not getting over that ice being <laughs> shipped back that's, yeah that's pretty incredible so can you tell us what you're working on now i'm working on a, a show a netflix show called havoc um in post-production so i'm just helping out in post okay when's that to yeah, you i actually don't know I'm <laughs> okay yeah all right well we'll keep an eye out for it anyway yeah great Awesome. Well, thank you, Charlie, and uh, look forward to hearing more from you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, nice to talk to you. Cheers.